Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sydney Ideas International Public Lecture Series at the University of Sydney. I'm Meredith Hall, Program Manager for Sydney Ideas. I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Simon Schaefer from Cambridge University to the University of Sydney and the Sydney Ideas Program tonight. As I think most of you know, Professor Schaefer is a guest of the Sydney Sawyer Conference, the Atlantic World and the Pacific Field, and we're very grateful to the conference organisers for making Simon available for the Sydney Ideas Lecture tonight. And I'd like to particularly thank Catherine Anderson for working so closely with Sydney Ideas to make it all happen. The format for tonight will be a 45-minute lecture followed by a 30-minute question and answer session. We've got two microphones here at the bottom of the aisles, and we'll just ask you to come down and use those microphones for your questions. We are recording the event for podcast on the university website, and tonight's also being filmed by Slow TV, so it is important that you use those microphones for your questions. I'd now like to welcome Professor Ian McCalman, Professorial Research Fellow and ARC Federation Fellow at the University of Sydney, who will introduce our speaker tonight. Thank you. Well, uh, before anything else, I'd like to, um, to honour and thank the original owners of the land we're meeting on tonight, the Cadigal people. And now, ladies and gentlemen, on behalf of Sydney Ideas, I'd like to welcome you warmly to this public uh, lecture, which is the opening plenary lecture of our two-day conference beginning tomorrow, The Atlantic World in the Pacific Field. This has been uh, an investigation of how the Pacific has served as a laboratory for Atlantic ideas since the 17th century. This conference and the lecture you're about to hear is the culmination of a two-year-long program of Sawyer seminars on the comparative study of cultures generously funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation in the USA and also supported by Sydney University School of Philosophical and Historical Inquiry. We're enormously gratified and excited to have Simon Schaffer to deliver the opening lecture of this, this plenary lecture. Simon is Professor of the History of Science at Cambridge University and a long-time fellow of Darwin College, Cambridge. He was educated both in the natural sciences and in history at Trinity College, Cambridge, and at Harvard. I'm only going to mention three of his most famous books because I don't want to keep you all night with one of those endless CVs. Um, in 2005, he and Prof. Uh, Stephen Shapin were awarded the Erasmus Prize for their jointly authored Leviathan and the Air Pump, a book so influential and so original that it has changed the way that Western science has been written and thought about ever since. In 2007, Simon produced The Mindful Hand, uh, a book on inquiry and invention from the late Renaissance uh, until the early industrialization period. And then uh, last year, he, he published his utterly absorbing and intriguingly titled The Brokered World, Go-Betweens and Global Intelligence, 1770 to 1820. Currently, Simon has a Leverhulme Fellowship to, to study the history of astronomy and, British, and the British Empire. And we'll be hearing some of the fruits of that work, I think, tonight in his lecture, 
entitled In Transit, European Cosmologies in the Pacific. And before I hand him over to you, I'd like to leave you with one pertinent personal fact about Simon. Though born in Southampton and with an accent not unlike a London bother boy, uh, he actually spent some of his boyhood years in Brisbane. This is, as you probably know, is a dangerous thing to know, not only because of the, uh, not only because of the rugby competitions, but also because, as in the case of the Bee Gees, we Australians like to claim anyone famous for ourselves who spent anything more than a few weeks in our country. So, for tonight at least, ladies and gentlemen, I give you Simon Schaffer, Honorary Australian. Great. Um, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Let me first say how really grateful I am for this uh, remarkably generous invitation and the opportunity to speak in uh, the celebrated and eminent Sydney Ideas uh, series. It's really a treat for me, and I will try my best to make it uh, enjoyable for you. Um, as Ian has already pointed out, um, this is simultaneously a lecture in the Sydney Ideas series and uh, an opening gambit in uh, the Sawyer Conference, uh, which gets going properly tomorrow. Let me begin by reflecting briefly on the relationship between two terms which are used in the manifesto of the Sawyer project. The project itself calls itself the Antipodean Laboratory. The meeting that we're starting now calls itself the Atlantic world in a Pacific field. The relationship between those two expressions is rather a good way, I hope, of summarizing what I'm after in this lecture. Because for a very long time now, um, social scientists, anthropologists, and other folk who concern themselves intellectually and academically, both with the life of the sciences and with the life of colonialism, have been struggling, I think, with two seemingly plausible but strangely related ideas. One idea is that laboratories, and by extension other scientific institutions, are colonies of modernity. That's to say they are privileged sites and spaces, and have long been so, where the modern world is on the one hand tried out, and on the other hand engineered into existence. So in that sense, colonies of modernity. But an equally influential, equally important, equally troublesome slogan has been that colonies are laboratories of modernity. That's to say that for the period of high European imperialism, from roughly the late 1700s through the late 1900s, it's been argued by many, colonial spaces and settings provided unusually potent, effective, and efficient sites at which institutions we might incautiously associate with the modern world are first tried out. Institutions as various as fingerprinting, the census, and uh, Benthamite programs of education. 
So I want to think a little about the relationship between those two notions, laboratories and, in my case, observatories as colonies of modernity, colonies and, in general, colonial spaces as laboratories of modernity. It's not clear in those two expressions what's doing the explaining and what is being explained. And the way I want to get at that problem is, as my title implies, through the notion of cosmology or cosmologies. Characteristically, I'm going to take a ludicrously relaxed attitude to the sense of that term. Cosmology in this talk certainly means an account of the structure of the universe proper to a particular learned erudite culture. It certainly means that. But by extension, I want to give it a slightly more transcendental sense, that cosmologies define in fascinating and important ways the conditions of possibility of certain kinds of enterprises. So the cosmology a cultural group subscribes to, constructs, disseminates, and proclaims, and proclamation is always already a very important aspect of cosmology, cosmologies very often specify what must be the case about the world such that a particular set of effective and privileged practices can go on. Exceptionally good example of this is the cosmology of Newtonian positional astronomy, which not only specified the contents of a universe and how it should be understood and analyzed, observed and explained, but even more importantly, set out some very fundamental conditions for the very possibility of practicing the kinds of sciences, technologies, navigational techniques, and so on, on which a great deal of European North Atlantic enterprises were pursued. The complementary point that I want to bring out about cosmologies in general and North Atlantic cosmologies in particular in my period is that they play games with space and time and the exchanges between them. One of the most striking aspects of both the hardware and the software of European cosmologies in this epoch is that a large number of devices were constructed and distributed which allowed time to be turned into space. The most celebrated machine that does that is a clock. But beyond horology and chronometry, European cosmologies worked out a whole series of tropes, themes, and machines which allowed what seemed distant to seem ancient and what allowed something that was transient in time to be managed by the artful, ingenious, and intimate manipulation of space. So those are the themes that I hope in the time that I have to cover. I start with a really, really brilliant Sydney idea, which is Henry Chamberlain Russell's magnificent book on the transit of Venus as it had been observed by his team centered in Sydney but extending south, north and to the west to the Blue Mountains in 1874. As many of you will know, it took more than a decade for the government astronomer of New South Wales to produce this book, 
and he insisted that the results obtained in New South Wales during the recent, it wasn't then recent, but hey, he was applying for more money at this point, during the recent transit of Venus are of the greatest importance, both in a scientific point of view and also with regard to the credit due to this colony for the position taken in this important scientific matter. Already in that expression, one sees the kind of cosmological entanglement which fascinates me so much, both in a scientific point of view and also with regard to the credit due to this colony for the position taken in this important scientific matter. What's at stake there, one might be tempted to say, is the political exploitation of purity. It is precisely the purity, the self-evident virtue of the observations of the transit of Venus, which ought to have allowed North Atlantic and Pacific-based astronomers in 1874 to establish the distance from this planet to the sun with unparalleled accuracy and spectacularly failed to do so, and on the other hand, the obvious political heft of taking part in that international project. It reminds us graphically, I think, that there is always, certainly throughout the period that concerns me, a fascinating relationship between proclamations of scientific purity, isolation, the ability to keep parasites, disturbances away, and the force and power that sciences so isolated can therefore exercise. That's one of the senses of the phrase, laboratories and observatories are colonies of modernity. But as we know extremely well, and the situation continues in force to our present, and it will continue for some time, the preservation of this much-vaunted isolation and purity is itself a major political act. I'm showing you here, it'll be a theme that will come up in our uh, workshop, uh, I imagine, in uh, Catherine Teaiwa's work on Hawaii and islands of globalization, which I look forward to enormously. I'm showing you here um, traces of a very long-running and fraught and fascinating series of conflicts in Hawaii, which can be traced back to uh, much earlier periods, as we'll see in the, in the 1700s and 1800s, between astronomers and other kinds of experts. We're thinking here not so much of um, an anthropology of science, but rather an anthropology for science, an enterprise that must constructively deal with hosts to make sure they don't become aliens. Many North Atlantic observatories must work closely um, with indigenous peoples. In January 2007, for example, fierce controversy, illustrated here, broke out on Hawaii around rival claims that Mauna Kea, which is one of the world's largest and most important sites for optical astronomy, is in fact 
the meeting place of the sky god Wakea and the earth mother Papa, parents of the first Hawaiian ancestor, and the alternative claim that Mauna Kea is the very best place on this planet to build a U.S. Air Force-funded $100 million telescope to track asteroids before they crash into the Earth. And that matter of concern has been long debated between astronomers and other experts such as the Hawaiian Culture Committee of the Mauna Kea Management Board. The quote that I've put up for you here is by the astronomy professor, Hawaiian-based astronomy professor Michael West, writing in the Honolulu Advertiser in February of 2003. I won't read it out, but you see from this text precisely the tropes of purity and danger of an anthropology for science and the deployment of a cosmology in the name of the conditions of possibility of astronomical work. Now, as I've indicated, those kinds of problems have a very long history. I'm juxtaposing here one of the first 18th century images of the geography of the transit of Venus made by the brilliant, if slightly eccentric, London experimental philosophy lecturer and instrument maker, Benjamin Martin, who's showing here where on Earth one must be in 1769 to observe the transit of Venus. And you can just see, perhaps, in the top right uh, hemisphere, the then unmapped eastern coast of New Holland and the absence in his chart of Tahiti, which when he made this chart had not yet been visited by British mariners. I'm juxtaposing all that with an after-dinner speech given at Littleton in New Zealand in 1874 about the consequences of the 1769 project, simply to bring out yet again the relationship between the interest of pure science and the British Empire, and the way in which those two vectors are constantly in play in the long story of knowledge in transit. And it's very striking how often that trope is used, that trope to both contrast and entangle purity and utility, is used right through our period. It's notoriously used in William Bly's self-serving announcement of the breadfruit projects of 1788 and onwards. It's used much less familiarly, but much more interestingly, in the project of the um, Irish Republican, Protestant Irish Republican, Wolf Tone, in a letter to the then English Prime Minister, William Pitt, Tone is proposing, in 1788, the establishment of a military colony on Hawaii, on the Sandwich Islands, as a way of destroying Spanish commerce on the western coast of the Americas. And Wolf Tone begins his manifesto for the Sandwich Islands project. He's at the same time, as the manuscript shows, planning a revolt in Ireland of similar military consequence 
to the west coast of the hostile British Isles, he again uses precisely the same linkage and contrast between the sciences, nautical skill, success, philosophical curiosity on the one hand, and political advantage on the other. So there's a series of themes of separation and entanglement in this kind of European cosmology, which seem to me to be exceptionally characteristic of its attitude, notably, towards travel in, exploitation of, and often violent aggression in the spaces of our ocean of islands, of the Pacific. Now let me turn to what's at stake specifically in astronomy. Let me begin by reminding ourselves that there are, at the beginning of my period, in the late 1700s, many different kinds of astronomy. Astronomy is not a monotonic or monolithic enterprise. And here are three more or less iconic representations of three dominant practical enterprises within North Atlantic astronomy of this period. What was called equatorial astronomy, here in Gilray's magnificent vision, being practiced by the king, um, observing uh, one comet attempting to uh, rival the luster of the monarch of the United Kingdom, Napoleon on the left, George III on the right. At bottom, one of the more fundamental forms of astronomy in our period, nautical astronomy, midshipmen using a sextant. And then at right, perhaps the most familiar version of what cosmology was in this period, the extraordinary vision of an infinity of infinite universes produced by one of Benjamin Martin's colleagues, Thomas Wright of Durham, and then read in a garbled German version by Immanuel Kant in Hamburg a few years later. So a variety of astronomies which depend on very different cosmologies, very different conditions of possibility are in play for at least these three and other kinds of astronomical practice in the Georgian period. The one that will draw most attention is nautical navigational astronomy. Let's think a little more about that. So here is a very familiar image made by Georg Forster um, on Cook's second voyage, an image of ice blink, and I've juxtaposed it with a passage from a very famous geography professor writing in 1781, describing a journey across a wide and stormy ocean occupied by icebergs, and the geography professor links that instantly to the question of possession and of the legal basis of possession, which must be transcendentally fixed before anything like a voyage commences. So we must know by what title we possess this land before we can safely engage in voyages of discovery. As many of you will already have realized, this famous geography professor is indeed Immanuel Kant. And this is not from a textbook of geography, but from the second volume of the Critique of Pure Reason. And the land that Kant is describing 
is not in the South Pacific. It is the empire of truth. But it shows that in the wake, precisely in this case, in Forster's wake, Cook's wake too, Kant uses the imagery of Pacific travel in the great southern ocean precisely to specify the relationship between disinterest and purity on the one hand and possession and seizure on the other, which I'm arguing is a fundamental aspect of the North Atlantic cosmology of the time. In describing the land of truth as an island subject to precision surveying in the name of possession and position, Kant sets out here in the clearest possible form the fundamental connection (coughs) in enlightened cosmologies between fantasies of travel, encounter, loss and conquest. And again, as many of you will know, Kant follows it up within a few years in a extraordinary article he wrote for the Berlin Monthly under the telling title, What is Orientation in Thinking? In this essay, Kant deliberately takes his readers from the puzzle of positioning the ideal observer in astronomy to a definition of enlightenment itself. He tells Berliners that to think for oneself means to look within oneself for the supreme touchstone of truth and the maxim of thinking for oneself at all times is enlightenment, unquote. Kant motivates this account of enlightenment by explicit reflection on astronomical positioning and on the position of the astronomer in the South Seas. He writes, quote, In spite of all the objective data in the sky, I orient myself geographically purely by means of a subjective distinction. And if all the constellations were one day changed, as they have been for travellers, even an astronomer, if he heeded only what he saw and not at the same time what he felt would inevitably become disoriented, unquote. So the claim here is that enlightenment and positional astronomy rely on knowing where you are, and you know where you are because of an inner sense of direction, and that would be best evidenced under alien skies in the vast ocean of truth. Now let's focus a little more on the Venus Project itself. I'm showing you here the sites to which North Atlantic astronomers were dispatched for the first 18th century transit in 1761 on the left and the second 18th century transit in 1769 on the right. And while those maps represent in a certain sense a rather familiar image of what made the transit of Venus projects the extraordinary and unprecedented enterprises that they were, the much more important map to think about is this one. This is a map made by Commander Waters, the uh, former curator at the National Maritime Museum in Greenwich, which shows the travels not of humans, 
but of non-humans, of the Shelton clocks without which no transit of Venus observation would count as an observation at all. And what Commander Waters did was to trace around the globe the movement of these both indispensable and remarkably emblematic devices whose presence was a condition of possibility for observing the transit of Venus as such. And in particular, this is a point on which I wish to place great stress, they remind us that activities by, for example, astronomers on the beach in their portable observatories are in remarkable ways governed by their relation with their hardware and their hosts and are other regarding in a way that I think historians of science have not yet begun to understand properly. These are processes and actions oriented simultaneously towards the intricacies of the local situation in which one is, as witnessed the Mauna Kea controversy, and yet the ultimate, most important audience for one's performance is remotely distant, is absolutely absent. One will know that one has observed the transit of Venus adequately if and only if long afterwards and elsewhere others to whom one is responsible but over whom one has no control judge so. So the feature of action at a distance, which is very much a concern of the Sawyer workshop, I think comes through here in spades. Now most historians celebrate, and understandably so, these projects as triumphs, as triumphs of the Age of Enlightenment, as uh, um, has often been done, and as the demonstration of uh, planetary vision in the name of absolute precision. So Bernard Smith, the doyen of this kind of argument, writes in 1988, skill in the use of these instruments, accurate computation, and precision observation provided the theoretical potential for all efficient maritime exploration, and I do not disagree. However, the transit project of and by itself was a complete failure. Um, I juxtapose an icon of 18th century precision culture made in Munich in the 1780s with a contemporary judgment of the outcome of the Venus project. They confidently expected to attain something like a permanent settlement of our system. They were grievously disappointed, and indeed they were. So a further striking aspect of the European cosmologies that entered and left the Pacific is that on the one hand, the authority of Newtonian cosmological precision and the deep sense of global mastery continued in the same breath as, and often in the same texts as, proclamations of its crisis, its moral failure, the difficulty of imposing its measures elsewhere. An exceptionally good example of that is the philosophical history of the two Indies, East and West, made by Reynal and Diderot and their colleagues in Paris in the 1770s. They were celebrants of the Enlightenment information order 
and as our colleague Jorge Canizares Esguera has so well pointed out for us, they were also people who pervade the black legend of Habsburg and Iberian corruption. In the very same breath, praising and damning the European Atlantic's presence elsewhere on Earth. A wonderful and striking, I think, for us, example of this that has been pointed out recently by Jenny Mander and others, is that Reynal's um, book, this vast project to historicize and critique North Atlantic imperialism and commerce, on the one hand invents the figure of what the authors call a black Spartacus, who will one day liberate the slaves of the Americas, and on the other hand invents the figure of James Cook as a heroic navigator who will spread the virtues of commerce worldwide by discovering the Northwest Passage. And the language in which Reynal and his co-authors describe Cook is exactly the same language, Jenny points out, as the language in which the black Spartacus is praised. The liberation from slavery goes along with precision navigation and commercial projects. And I'm showing you here, I think, an equally eloquent passage in which Reynal and Diderot, more certainly Diderot than Reynal, compare and contrast commercial navigation, a communication of flying bridges, as it were, that reunites one continent with another, with the achievement of Newton and Newtonian astronomy himself, much in favor of the merchant as opposed to the astronomer. The merchant's problems are the more difficult to resolve because they depend on the knowledge of men and of things. What's being pointed to here as a further element of the kind of cosmology with which we're concerned is the notion of credit and of commerce as fundamental preconditions of making this system tick. What counted were the criteria with which narrative and measure could be assessed. How to discriminate, for example, between a series of reports from the Northwest Pacific that reached London in the early 1700s. The first of them was this from a native of Taiwan, of Formosa, called George Psalmanazar, who reached London in 1704, was interviewed by Isaac Newton. I think the only occasion on which Newton met anyone whom he believed was from the Pacific Ocean. That was one report from the Pacific. This was a second made by the uh, Dean of St. Patrick's, Jonathan Swift, masquerading as Lemuel Gulliver. This is his map of Japan and the islands nearby. Printed, notice, by the same publisher and the same editor as Newton's mathematical principles. And thirdly, this, which is a section of a map made to accompany Engelbert Kempfer's account of Japan, managed into print by the president of the Royal Society, Henry Sloan. The puzzle here was to distinguish between the plausibility of these three maps. One, Salman Azar's, looks true but is in fact fictional. Salman Azar is a disreputable ex-French defrock Jesuit from Avignon who managed so successfully to persuade the universe... I love this bit. 
to persuade the University of Oxford that he was from Formosa, that they gave him the job of lecturer in Formosan. <laughs> this is Gulliver, and this is Kempfer. So the problem of credit and commerce, credit in both its senses, of fiscal networking and epistemic plausibility, mattered enormously to the kinds of cosmologies that are in play here. It's for this reason, no doubt, that Bernard Smith, in several passages and in a very celebrated way, describes navigators like Cook in highly commercial terms. As you'll know, for Bernard Smith, Cook was, I quote, Adam Smith's first and perhaps greatest global agent. In the Pacific, Cook had to play at being as best he could Adam's, Adam Smith's God. He had to distinguish, according to Bernard Smith, between exploitation and extermination, even though those distinctions were hard to make. Well, yes, Cook was Smith's global agent, and Cook had to reveal the hidden hand from time to time, just as Bernard Smith suggested when natives made off with boats or chronometers. And yes, it's true that there were markets in the Pacific before Cook, but, as Bernard Smith puts it, at various stages of development. But I think more worthwhile to attend to is the kind of argument being, that was made more recently by Marshall Salins and his colleagues on the whole notion of the trans-Pacific sector of the world system. Salin's celebrated lecture, entitled, usefully for my purposes, Cosmologies of Capitalism, is worth citing here precisely because it helps prevent a simple-minded substitution in which sciences such as astronomy could be seen as entirely local, while the capitalist world system straightforwardly replaces them as the universal metric against which all cultures and all locales could then be assessed. Instead of wrongly judging others by their failure to establish this North Atlantic cosmology, Salins and his colleagues urged that one would now, after all, absurdly judge them by their failure to establish late 19th century capitalism. In common with several more recent scholars, many of them here, Salin's declared aim was to avoid stories that reduced intercultural encounters to confrontations between the logic of the rational imperial capitalist world system and doomed and expropriated local indigenous cultures, a model he brilliantly mocked as, and I quote from him, a kind of physics on one side and a teleology on the other. And indeed, episodes in which, for example, Western goods and persons are incorporated effectively as indigenous powers deserve much more attention than they have typically received from historians of science, particularly historians of astronomy. Historians of astronomy and of astronomical instruments, like myself, have often discussed the use of instruments in terms of unwanted theft or loss. Uh, Cook's quadrants were constantly being taken. But I think rather than attend to which instruments were taken, 
it's much more worthy to attend to what they were taken to be. In other words, how Western travellers, merchants and astronomers seeking the Pacific for values, in all senses of that word, had to accede to local demands for value and for prestige. And that, I think, gives the right kind of setting for the sort of story we might now begin to tell about the career of astronomical travellers and of astronomical hardware in the Pacific space. There are, however, obstacles, major historiographic obstacles to doing that. Precisely because of astronomy's apparent purity, precisely because of its apparent exactitude, precisely because it worked so hard to produce the rational globe that it then pretended merely to describe, it has often seemed the hardest possible case for this kind of treatment. I'm juxtaposing here with the uh, famous plan of the observatory at Fort Venus that Cook established in 1769, two telling quotes from brilliant geographers and historians. The upper quote, only on an absurdly a priori theory would a study of astronomical technique have to take a geographical view, is from the inaugural lecture given by Oscar Spate at ANU in the 1950s, defining the scope of what an Australasian geographical project would be and how much of history geography would take over, Spate was absolutely clear that it would never take over the task of the history of the sciences and in particular not astronomy. The lower citation is from one of the greatest historians of imperialism and the exact sciences, Lewis Pionson, who's argued that astronomy's great confinement from mundane values was real and virtuous. And, Pionson writes, those who achieved distinction overseas in the exact sciences, here comes a complicated metaphor, did so by staying beyond the reach of the imperialist octopus that moved men across oceans to satisfy metropolitan appetites, unquote. Well, as you can already tell, I disagree, and I strongly disagree. I think rather that tracking the interpolation of imperial projects precisely with the purity, precision, and value freedom of the astronomical enterprise, we will see how these values are made and why they worked. And these are values of the most various kind. I'm showing you here, this is principally for McCalman's benefit, of course, um, the standard value-making procedure with which British vessels were equipped from the 1760s through at least to the 1820s and 30s. This is a skeleton form from the Greenwich Almanac with the rules for calculating longitude by lunar distance method, a project that Maskelyne, the astronomer royal, reckoned should take between four and five hours, but almost all those who tried it took much longer to execute. And what's fascinating about 
the texts, the instructions, the lessons, the training in rigor that tended to accompany value-making projects like this is that they absolutely focus on that fascinating relationship between the insulation of locale and the integrity of the network that binds locales together. So, for example, Cook himself urges in his journal in January of 1775 that, quote, we cannot have a greater proof of the accuracy of different instruments than the near agreement of our observations taken with many different sextants, each made by different workmen. So Cook is absolutely focusing on the coherence of the metropolitan market and its survival in the Pacific sphere. Again, we know very well the kinds of puzzles that these observers ran into, not only in the 18th but also in the 19th century Venus transit projects. The black drop, which is now believed to be the result of um, atmospheric disturbance um, in the Earth and effects of the observer's eye, but was then believed to have something to do with the atmosphere of Venus itself, making it almost impossible to generate the fundamental value of um, a Venus transit observation which was required both in the 1760s and in the 1870s. Let me skip over that to this. Sorry, I've gone too far. What's also striking about the representation of these allegedly isolated sites of precision value-making and of precision observation is that they frequently involve recognition of the porosity, the difficulty, and the fragile status of the, of the observer's predicament. This is a magnificent image of, made by Juan Ravenet of the great Malaspina expedition, probably the single most important scientific expedition into the Pacific of the late 18th century, launched by the Spanish government in the 1780s and early 1790s. This is at uh, the Malvinas Islands, and this, these are experiments on the going rate of pendulums to determine the figure of the Earth. It's the um, picture, it's the object at the left that is interesting here, which is the portable observatory. And the juxtaposition of this image made by Ravenet with one he made more privately, which has himself, you see on the right, drawing the image that you're looking at. Similarly, here in the Malaspina expedition on what we, I think, uh, ethnocentrically call the northwest coast, the northeast coast of the Pacific, uh, on the border between what is now Alaska and Canada, when uh, local Tlingit experts and elders attempted to take the astronomical quadrant, uh, something very like the Ramsden quadrant from the Naval Museum in Madrid, illustrated to the left. Here is the fascinating remark that Malaspina makes in his journal for this encounter. I did not know whether any of the many natives who approached the observatory understood the religious ideas concerning the sun and stars 
by which I attempted to give some colour to our astronomical observations, or even if they did understand them, whether this would secure us the way we needed. It is certain that in this region we are for once extremely fortunate, as we were not disturbed in the least during the period of about a day during which the astronomical instruments were in their sight. So what Malaspina is indicating there is that what he called his palladium, that's to say his astronomical quadrant, had been deliberately surrounded by cosmologico-religious talk by the Europeans, by those from the North Atlantic, in order to tapu, in order to secure, in order to defend an exceptionally fragile and difficult space in which astronomical observations were being made. And then lastly, under this heading, the importance of not simply the transition between space and time, which astronomy and chronology and chronometry allowed, but also the philosophical movement between space and time, which is so characteristic of this period and is again extremely familiar, that far away folk are as if they are long ago that to travel in space was, for many North Atlantic observers, to go backwards in time. And how closely this, for the Baudin expedition, how closely this was linked to the status of the instruments and of the fantasies about the instruments that were in play. We see that, well, not only in these kind of familiar remarks, the philosophic traveller is in fact moving through the sequence of ages he is travelling into the past, but also, again familiar, but I think necessary to juxtapose here, the fantasy of a future in which the Pacific itself will be Europe to a degenerate North Atlantic. This from John Stockdale's um, editorial preface to La Perouse's Uh, to the search for La Perouse, in which it's imagined that great nations in the immense region of New Holland may send their navigators, philosophers and antiquaries to contemplate the languid remains of the arts and sciences in this quarter of the globe. This is basically a prophecy of Earl's Court. And it culminates, again, a familiar point, but I think crucial, for understanding what European cosmologies in the Pacific might mean, with uh, Macaulay's famous trope in his review of Ranka about a traveller from New Zealand who will take his stand on a broken arch of London Bridge to sketch the ruin of St. Paul's. The point of that trope is that it goes along, it fundamentally goes along with, it seems to me, aspects of North Atlantic cosmologies as they had already been long deployed in the Pacific space. Cosmologies, I've argued, which from the intimacies of practice with clocks and telescopes and temporary observatories all the way to the fundamentals of a visionary uh, proclamation of a future degenerate Europe and progressive and vital South Pacific underwrites, it seems to me, that strange relationship between um, Pacific science, European cosmology. Let me move on 
to give two juxtaposed examples in the few minutes that remain to me of the way in which this kind of entanglement worked itself out. One from the 1840s, one from much more recently. So this is Frank Hurley's, I think, magnificent, and having visited Parramatta last Monday, thank you to the curators and guides who uh, hosted us then, is a magnificent photo of the view uh, eastwards uh, from Parramatta, showing not only the joke about the obelisk on the left, which is in the wrong place, commemorating the uh, site of old Parramatta Observatory, built under the orders of Governor Brisbane there in 1821, but also what remains of the transit instrument there in the park, which you see to the right. Now, this, the first permanent observatory built in uh, New Holland, in uh, New South Wales, of course is one of the few, not the only observatory, to have to close because it was eaten, because it was white-anted by the 1840s. What's interesting in the context of my talk, I hope, is the ideology that Governor Brisbane himself developed to surround it. Brisbane engaged probably more than any other of his contemporaries in this network in what we might call the mathematical sublime. The first quote that I've given you there is from a long notebook entry entitled Sacred Thoughts, which are notes that the uh, fundamentalist evangelical Governor Brisbane kept in the pew during sermons when his attention was wandering. And this is how his sacred thought begins. In 1821, the population of the British Empire was 21 million. It will become in 1861, 42 million. And in 1901, 85 million. Does not, he continues, the sublimity of this idea underscore the sublimity of the population of other worlds. He links together in a fascinating way the cosmology he wants to develop at Parramatta with the imperial sublimity of vastness of scope and scale. And I've juxtaposed that with a much more famous quote from Brisbane, which he gave at an after-dinner speech at the opening of Glasgow Observatory in December of 1836, in which he unwontedly proclaimed Parramatta as the Greenwich of the Southern Hemisphere, which at that stage it was. Less familiar, however, on the Parramatta project is a series of notes made by John Herschel, the handsome astronomer, at the top of the image. He later got slightly less well-chiseled, the cheekbones perhaps less well-developed later in life, who over Christmas of 1837 hosted the New South Wales governor-elect, George Gipps, who was on his way to Sydney via the Cape. And the two men, Herschel and Gipps, spent what must have been a sultry Boxing Day dinner discussing how to save Parramatta from termites and incompetence. For Herschel, the point of Parramatta Observatory was no longer astronomical in Brisbane's sense. Rather, it was regulative. The function of Parramatta 
he argued, would be the maintenance and propagation of perfectly accurate knowledge of national standards. It seems to me, Herschel lectured Gibbs, impossible to insist too strongly on the importance of these operations or on the necessity of starting them as effectively and as early as possible in the history of a country peopled, you'll be glad to know, by an energetic race of men rising rapidly into a flourishing community amongst whom the mischiefs resulting from careless and unscientific surveying cannot fail to develop them in endless litigation, unquote. So not a proclamation of Earl's Court, a proclamation of the High Court. And the function of astronomy there was beginning to change from something cosmological in the sense of producing the arithmetic sublime to something far more regulative, far more practical. That's exactly what I've meant in this talk by European cosmologies in the Pacific. I want to close with a very, very different and uh, contrasting example of, um, here we go, of the way in which cosmologies work and how they regulate observation in this epoch. Again, my concern is with cosmologies as specifying the conditions of possibility of astronomical labor in specific sites. And my target, I apologize, is once again Bernard Smith. The very first figure of Bernard Smith's magnificent collection of essays, Imagining the Pacific, is the figure on the right. This figure on the right is a photograph made in the South Atlantic by Arthur Eddington in May of 1919 to demonstrate Einstein's general theory of relativity, to demonstrate that light from a star reaching Earth will be bent by the Earth's gravitational field and that it will be bent in just the way that Einstein specified. Now, this was a very celebrated Atlantic astronomical expedition. It had many features in common with the 18th century astronomical expeditions that we've been thinking about for most of this talk. I show you Eddington and Einstein chatting happily on the left in front of Cambridge's Institute of Astronomy. What's so fascinating is that it seemed to Bernard Smith as it seemed to most observers and commentators in 1919 that, and I quote, Einstein's hypothesis was verified by photographs. And that is completely untrue. It is not the case that these photographs, either on their own or in combination, verified Einstein's hypothesis. That's a very good example of what I've been trying to suggest is the cosmological discourse of purity that surrounds astronomy. One attends, apparently, to one trace. One's attention is drawn away from the network, the complexity, the labor, and the travel involved in making images like this tell. There's also a very specific way in which this is not true. It was not 
the May 1919 Atlantic expedition, which demonstrated to astronomers that Einstein's general theory was viable. Rather, you'll be happy to learn it was a Pacific and Indian Ocean expedition. This one. And I just want to show you this film, which I hope is going to start. Which it isn't. It's typical. Um, it was this one to Wallau in Western Australia, launched in, 19, in September of 1922, that was the decisive evidence for Einstein's theory. It was, in ways which we are going to be discussing in several papers in the Sawyer Conference, a moment of great political and scientific transition in South Pacific, Australasian, and global science. This was no longer a British, but rather an American expedition from Lick Observatory from California. The comparisons were between Wallal, as you see near Broome, nearish to Broome, and observations made by the Americans in Tahiti. And it was this data which completely convinced all astronomers, as you see from the quotes that I'm showing you on the right, that Einstein's theory was now confirmed. We need not repeat the Einstein test in the next eclipse. Now let me see if I can get the film to work. So this, as far as I know, is the first film made in Australia of a scientific expedition in astronomy. It shows the astronomers at work at Wallal. This is the American team. And I'll just let it run for the next few minutes, two or three, to show you, in a certain sense, what I've been talking about for the last 40 minutes, 45 minutes. I've been talking about a fragile, difficult, artful, complicated, unreliable set of practices whose audiences, I love the hat, whose audiences are often and in fact mainly elsewhere and which don't simply depend on making a single registration as witness a photo and then inspecting the photo in a simple-minded way. That should be self-evident and yet ideologically it's not. This is my favourite bit of the film. as one sees how artful these guys have to be. So these are the um, telescopes which are going to be used to observe the um, solar eclipse, and those are the photographic plates which are going to record the star positions behind the sun when the sun is in eclipse, and they will then be compared with similar photos made in Tahiti where um, the stars are not disturbed by sunlight or by the eclipse and if their positions shift in the exactly appropriate manner as Einstein's theory would predict, then his theory is good. And this, as far as I know, is the first film of an eclipse. So I'd love to be corrected.
Okay. So the film was made by a New Zealand, Australian New Zealand filmmaker, Ernest Brandon Carter, a military veteran, an enthusiastic cinema operator, who, as you see here, then toured the film to Melbourne, um, where he showed it at Hoyt's Deluxe on the 18th of October 1922, barely, what, four weeks after the eclipse? And I love the advertising. And then at the Australian Museum the following winter, in July, an interesting lecture, Astronomers and Aborigines, was given at the Australian Museum yesterday by Mr. Brandon Carter, that's it should be Carter, not Kramer, who accompanied the Wallal Eclipse expedition. Now what you notice, there are many things to say about this, we don't have time to go into all of them, is the instant and immediate juxtaposition between Einstein and Aborigines, who had, as a matter of fact, provided almost all the infrastructure for the astronomical expedition. And um, the complete film, I believe, has not just the section that I've just showed you, but also, as you see from this press cutting from the Herald, um, films of Aboriginal life as they were then understood. Now, the punchline of this story for me is that when the film was brought to England in 1923, it was no longer called Astronomers and Aborigines. It was called, rather wonderfully, I think, by a title which perhaps my lecture this evening should also have adopted. It was called The Sun Worshippers. And the point of my lecture has been to explain that contrast. Thank you. Thank you for that tour de force, Simon. We can uh, have questions now. There are two um, microphones, and if people would uh, come up to the microphone, and uh, you can respond to each of them. Thank you, Simon. This wonderful, wonderful, amazing paper, and um, again, welcome to Sydney. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. I'd like to go back to a particular um, particular episode in your story of European cosmologies in the Pacific, please. And if I may, go back to the episode of George Salmanazar. Yeah. And when he arrives in London at the Royal Society, by coincidence, there is also a French Jesuit there by the name of Father Jean de, Font Jean de Fontenay. And... I think that one of the reasons why George Salmanazar was so credible as a Formosan was because the French Jesuit astronomer and mathematician said to John Sloan, this man is in fact not Formosan at all. We know him and we know him to be an imposter. And I think this says something about credit and discredit of particular kinds of European cosmologies. Mm. Um, and I was wondering if you might like to say something about that yeah. and also about going back to uh, clocks and scientific instruments, what happened when French Jesuits went to China, right. which in, in spite of the 
long distance. They did not, in fact, go back through time, <laughs> but were in a rather interesting situation of having their own clocks uh, made fun of mm. by the uh, by the Chinese astronomers, and, sure. and we can rely on the the scholarship of academics such as Catherine Jamy sure. and other French scholars who have gone and, uh, luckily for us, managed to translate the uh, the mirror image, the the Chinese experience of European cosmologies in their part of the world. Absolutely, absolutely. No, it's a very, I mean, it's a rich and complicated theme, and you've worked on it. There are a lot it. of questions. Yeah, obviously. and you've worked on it much more than I have. <laughs> Um, so let me say a few more things about that. Um, first of all, so George Salmanazar presents himself in 1704 through the agency of an um, English priest in the English army in the Netherlands. Um, the context is of ferocious Protestant Catholic, British French polemic. And several scholars have pointed out that the reason why this Formosan is plausible is precisely the reason you give, which is that he's not a Jesuit. That's a very good thing not to be in London in 1704. Um, others have, I think, expanded that in much more interesting ways. Frank Lestrangeant, for example, points out that what Salmanazar says happens in Formosa more than anything else is anthropophagy, cannibalism. And one sees in a fascinating way a kind of early version of the controversy between Salins and Obiasekere being played out in London in the early 1700s. Since Salmanazar arrives from Formosa and says, we eat children. And I escaped from Formosa, and then I escaped from the Jesuits. And the British audience hears a very strong relationship between pseudo-Formosan anthropophagy and the ceremony of the Eucharist. There's a very fundamental relationship in Protestant diabolism there. Lestrangeon suggests, and I think that makes a lot of sense, and it certainly explains why, as anti-Catholic a um, figure as Newton would find Salmanazar so plausible. So that's one thing to say. Second thing to say is that it is nevertheless extremely interesting that at the Royal Society in the early 1700s, when Salmanazar presents himself, most of the tests that the fellows put him through are astronomical tests. So, for example, Edmund Halley, who, I st who is, uh, it must be said on this occasion, characteristically more astute than Isaac Newton, asks Salmanazar, um, does the sun on your island ever shine straight down your chimney? Since he knows it's below the tropics, so he knows that there will be long periods when the sun is directly overhead, which it never is in London, and Salmanazar has no answer to that. And then when he comes back, it's kind of esprit d'escalier the following day, Salmanas says, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention, all our chimneys are bent. <laughs> so many of the tests are astronomical. The third point, and clearly we could talk a great deal about this, is yes, I mean, I do not mean to be saying, and I certainly don't want to be understood as saying, 
um, that European clocks allow Europeans to travel backwards in time when they uh, voyage into the ocean. And I certainly do not mean to say, in fact, I mean the opposite, I do not mean to say that far away is long ago. We'll be discussing this a great deal in the Sawyer workshop since the whole career of European North Atlantic discourses on ethnography and on anthropology are at stake here, um, right through to the end of the period that I was evoking, when phrases like Stone Age continue, and certainly continued, to be used in ways that precisely insinuate that kind of space into time change that they should never be used to do, right? So it's not just that one has Catherine Jamie's magnificent <laughs> translations of what Mandarin Clarks made of the crap mm -hmm. that the English brought to impress them or the Jesuits brought to <laughs> impress them, right? It's that one also has even more telling examples of the misprision of associating a distance in space with a distance in time, mm -hmm. right? And I think there's some fundamental issues that we will no doubt be discussing in several papers in the workshop. Thank you very much. Absolutely. It's a really important Thank theme. you, Simon. There's a question up there. Can you come down to the... If I look dim, it's be it, there are several reasons. One is I can't see anything. Offer girl from Hello, Orfa. Right. Uh, a question: uh, How how important uh, in your story actually is the colonialist, and, uh, and how much is it an 18th, 19th century story? I mean, uh, well, there is this. The first thing I thought is Mumford in the story about yeah. the obelisks and empires, and uh, that go, you know, back then. But more more precisely, the history of science. Uh, Networks that connect uh, local uh, uh, geographical to uh, to the ability to say something with authority about uh, about the heaven that the Jesuits are very proud of it at the beginning of the 17th century right that's that's their uh, argument against Galileo and the telescope they can spot people in Köln in Vienna in uh, in uh, in Rome and then they can do parallax observation and they don't need instruments and that's the point against mm -hmm. instruments. And um, uh, um, institutions that connect uh, uh, trade and, and, and uh, oceanic commerce with uh, mapping, is, that's a uh, 16th century, uh, mm -hmm. first Spanish and then Portuguese and then English phenomenon. So it's also uh, at least pre-colonialism in the sense of, uh, of English empire. So in what, I mean, it's not, uh, I'm not trying to say uh, that, uh, uh, what I'm trying to ask is what does colonialism do to change it? In what's, uh, Very good what's question. the import yeah, of colonialism? Yeah. Um, again, um, I run the risk of being radically misunderstood. The claim that you require long-range networks, which are, as we'll hear tomorrow, nevertheless exceptionally fragile and often asymmetric in their implications is not a necessary claim, right? Part of the polemic in this paper is not directed against historians of science who've worked on other different, frankly, also colonial 
think of the career of the Catholic monarchy that Jorge has t taught us about, that uh, uh, many other scholars have begun to investigate, um, that's not a non-colonial situation, right? My point, rather, is that there is a very powerful historiography which seeks to separate the projects that I've described from local, particular, colonial, imperial purposes. And the argument that they can function without them is, in my view, redundant. In this case, they absolutely go along with them and they absolutely function with them. The fact that on other occasions and elsewhere these links are also present is fascinating and interesting. But it doesn't tell against the argument that I want to make, and I'm sure you know, that should be clear. But your more general point, I think, is the really interesting one, right? which is um, what is it that this particular form of colonialism brings to the table, as it were? And I think one of the aspects that is very, very striking is that is in, for example, Herschel's conversation with Gibbs. That this is going to be an astronomy which is going to be a survey astronomy. This is going to be an astronomy where it's more important for Parramatta to provide the baseline for Thomas Mitchell's survey and everything that flows from that. That it will go along with a very particular model of governmentality. An example that I could have developed but um, really didn't have time or resources or actually the expertise to develop is the case of the transit of Venus expedition to Hawaii by the British in 1874, which went hand in hand with a complete overhaul of the um, more traditional, more powerful, more legitimate forms of land management and land apportionment and land tenure that were already there in Hawaiian culture and were challenged, debated, and transformed in ways that Hawaiian scholars have shown us by the presence of these astronomers, these warships, and the ambiguous status of Hawaii between American and British commercial and imperial networks. So I think there are very specific colonial, imperial, um, what, what we might call survey imperialism aspects of this that Matthew Edney looks at in the case of India, British India, and that other scholars have looked at in the case of the North and the South Pacific that are novel. But it's a difference of um, intensity rather than a difference in kind, it seems to me, finally. So that I'm very struck, for example, by the work of Serge Gruzinski and his colleagues on the use of exactly these kinds of enterprises in colonial Mexico from the 1540s right through to the late 1700s. It is characteristic of Anglos like me to imagine that everything starts in 1776, and we're wrong, right? Um, so I'm not saying that. But what I am saying against imperial historians of a certain kind is please make sure to absorb and take seriously the kinds of local particular scientific practices which may seem so pure or so universal that surely they can't be implicated this way in local colonial and imperial projects. That was my target, right? Um, I mean, I'm still stunned by, you know, my favorite geographer, Oscar Spate, saying there can't be a geography of astronomy, right? It just doesn't have a spatial dimension in that sense. So that was the thought.
Hi. Hello. Thanks for a wonderful talk. Um, I'm interested in scientists as troublemakers in late um, 18th century, early 19th century naval expeditions. The obvious one being the rift between Sir Joseph Banks and the Admiralty, right. which led to his replacement by York Forster. And later um, in that the incorporation of a significant number of civilian scientists on the expedition under Baudin caused much conflict, which prompted the exclusion of civilian scientists on the later expedition into the Pacific under Freycinet, mm -hmm. where they were replaced with naval officers who apparently fulfilled the same function. Um, would you like to expand on the rival and different epistemologies of civilian scientists and naval officers? Okay. Um, I would, yes. I, I would like to do that. Um, well, f first of all, you're spot on. And there is an almost sempiternal set of tensions between different forms of what we might call discipline in play, right? And it's worth exploiting that pun a lot. As some people here know, I'm very keen on punning on the word discipline. Um, since it, in the case of the uh, relations between the Board of Longitude, the Royal Society and the Admiralty and the Navy Board in the period that you're interested in, these are very different forms of discipline, accountability, responsibility, and so on. Um, as David Turnbull points out in the case of James Cook and Charles Green with respect to Maskelyne and the Admiralty, the management, for example, of the Venus data from Tahiti was exceptionally troubled in this respect since, after all, um, Maskelyne criticizes Cook and Green because they do not come, as he sees it, come up to the standards of Greenwich subordinates. But they are not Greenwich subordinates. Green had been a Greenwich subordinate on board. He is not a Greenwich subordinate. You see very similar issues in the case of the rather fraught letters between Maskelyne and William Dawes here in uh, 1788 and 1789, especially when Maskelyne tells Dawes to look for a comet that doesn't exist. Right? And this, as you point out, is going to be repeated again and again and will sometimes, not always, and not always either in the British or the French ex expeditions, uh, will be dealt with by the systematic substitution of scientific servicemen for inde independent ob observers. That's not a universal practice, but it does become quite common. Right? So you're absolutely right. There are very different forms of discipline in play. There are therefore very different forms of subordination in play. That's all true. Right? What interests me at least as much, which is jargon for what I actually know about... Um, is the way in which the Greenwich system, for example, and at the same time the Paris Observatoire system, becomes militarized in ways that await their historian, it seems to me. Right? So one very good example of this, um, tempted to show you the image, so I will show you the image, um, is what sorts of training are involved in disciplining observers as delegates in our period, right? Um, I've been arguing 
uh, right through the talk that um, cosmologies partly work to establish conditions of possibility. And I've been arguing throughout the talk that one of the things that's so interesting about these enterprises, which goes back precisely to Ofer's point, it's, it's why Ofer is right, um, that these are enterprises with distant audiences, right, and local and distant audiences. Okay, so what sort of disciplining can be brought into effect such that one can produce reliable delegates elsewhere? Um, by the 1840s, um, George Airy at uh, Greenwich had essentially militarized the, in, the entire observatory by analogy with the Navy, right? So this is a machine that imitates the transit of Venus, and in order to observe the 1874 transit, Airy made every single observer, there are more than 60 of them, move to Greenwich for three and a half months and be trained on this machine. And then replicas of this machine were sent to each British station around the world. Kerguelen, Hawaii, and elsewhere, right? New Zealand, and here in Sydney. And um, one was supposed to spend the time preparing for the transit in situ, again, going through this kind of mechanical training. And Airy says, it is necessary for every observer to go out ticketed with his result like a soldier in a regiment, right? And the journalists whom he employs say things like this. This is the principle which induces military commanders to organize sham fights as preparations for the real battle. So there's a complete militarization of what up till then had been high amateur astronomy, right? In the name of the epistemological and ethical and practical issues that you're pointing to, right? However, this is very much a theme that I imagine will come up in Joyce Chaplin's talk. Um, none of this works. The 1874 project is no more successful than the 1769 project. The range of data is at least as uh, ghastly. The error bar around how far away the sun is doesn't get very much better. In fact, the sun keeps on moving during the 1870s and 80s, as uh, various astronomers point out. I mean, not literally moving. Its, it's uh, distance keeps on changing. Um, and so this discipline is both practical I mean, I love Greenwich, but I wouldn't like living with George Airy and this machine for three and a half months before being sent to wherever. And um, that works. It has huge practical imp implications. It doesn't deliver. It does not deliver what they want, right? So there is that tension that you point to. It turns out to be fatal, near fatal, for large numbers of astronomical projects in our period. I think that's what's interesting about it in the end. Right? But you raise a fundamental question. Right? Any other questions? Okay. 
There's one over there. Hi. Sorry, it's rather a long way. fascinating talk. A bit louder. Can you hear me? Yeah. Um, I'm interested uh, in your um, reflections perhaps on what this kind of colonial endeavour was actually supplanting. Mm -hmm. Because um, from my understanding of Aboriginal cosmologies, each individual person in fact had a relationship with the universe as well as a relationship with the land forms and the species around them. Mm -hmm. And I've just kind of got a visual image, I think, um, from what you've been saying about um, scientific men going out to create a kind of co a connection around, like a, a grid around the earth, you know, and, and um, a, a, a pattern, if you like, of relationships that were very new but in fact anchored people very much into the earth, mm -hmm. if I'm making sense. Yeah, and I think this really um, supplanted um, the sorts of relationships that people here had um, with the whole of the universe. Mm. You know, for example, um, if, uh, uh, as I understand it, each individual Aboriginal person, in fact, had a relationship with the universe. So the pattern of connection, if you like, was going out from the earth as well as with other aspects of the earth. So, for example, if people look at a part of the sky, then they understood their relationship to it. In fact, in terms of perhaps paradigmatic behaviours about the way they live their life through law is encoded in the universe. So, in fact, this kind of endeavour that you've been describing and uh, by Western powers in the Pacific was producing a whole different... Um, set of relationships mm -hmm. of people with the universe. And I'm, I mean, I've got an idea of a disconnection here that in yep. fact ordinary people lost those kinds of relationships and lost, you know, perhaps all the mythology and the poetry mm -hmm. and the quality of life and all of the things, uh, perhaps even, you know, proper law mm -hmm. and stuff that went with it. Yeah, no, thank you for that. I mean, I think that's very, it's very important to try and think more about the issues that you raise. Um, I wouldn't be able to speak on behalf of, or certainly not expertly about, um, others' cosmologies and others' sense of self and identity that you're referring to. But one thing, there are two things I think that it is also very important to try and think about clearly in the issue that you raise. One is, it is not true that the North Atlantic cosmologies that I've been evoking here lack or escape from or abandon the mythic register. That is not true. There are very powerful mythological registers of 
absolutely fundamental kinds within the kinds of European cosmologies I've been talking about. For example, from the um, 1860s and 70s onwards, the closest collaborators of George Airy and of the British astronomers who organized the expeditions to Hawaii and so on began to produce what has to be called a solar mythology. They wrote books about the life and death of the sun. They found within their own culture enormous moral resources from the stories they were telling each other about the life and death of the sun. Uh, There's a magnificent, I think, ethically catastrophic book written by one of Airy's closest colleagues, uh, Balfour Stewart, and his Scottish collaborator, Peter Tate, called The Unseen Universe, which came out the same year as The Transit. And The Unseen Universe argues on the basis of this astronomy, specifically the astronomy of eclipse observations, of spectroscopic astronomy, of this kind of astronomy, that there is an unseen universe in which we all live and move and have our our being, which we sometimes experience in spiritualist seances, which is made of ether but is supersensible rather than sensible, and which a truly Christian astronomer, they say, must believe in. So we are not talking about the disenchantment of the world simply, right? And I think it's always dangerous to draw that contrast too sharply, right? The people I've been speaking about this evening are not, as they see it, living in a world that is entirely disenchanted. Quite the reverse, actually. So there's that side of it. The other side of it, however, is to uh, insist on the fact of um, intimate relations, intimate fundamental relations between the exterminism of European imperialism and the kinds of science that I've been talking about. One mustn't lose sight of that. I mean, I'm very struck by a recent remark by, I think, Inga Glendinen, that some recent studies of plural interactions, the weakness of the imperial networks may run the risk of ending up with a kind of rather favorable, relaxed account of the colonial and imperial projects that fascinate us and horrify us so much. And that is not where I think we want to be going historically. Right? This is a series of nuances and balances that several people at this conference are much more expert on than I, um, as an historian of science, uh, again, you know, massive respect to Ofer's point, um, I think there are really difficult issues for us here uh, about the dependence of certain scientific projects on imperial interests and the independence of those interests from certain kinds of scientific projects. And that, I think, centrally addresses the kinds of worries that you have. So I don't feel very confident about developing it much further, I would emphasize, to sum up, uh, we are not talking about the disenchantment of the world here. And on the other hand, we must not lose sight of the sanguinary violence 
that accompanied a great deal of the work that I've been describing. I mean, I have not gone into details about the structural racism, for example, of the Australian Transit of Venus projects of 1874 and 1881, which are absolutely there on the face of the documents and the face of the photographs, which I have not shown. It's probably just as well. I think we've reached uh, uh, time now. We've uh, tested Simon as a terrific set of questions. Thank you very much to the audience for that. Can I ask you to thank Simon once again and invite you to join us for a drink in the foyer afterwards? Thank you.